Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm Faye. And I'm James. So we've been thinking really hard because we wanted to have an episode dedicated to ARM to mark their IPO. Uh, ARM, of course, are the most famous tech company today, I would say, in Cambridge. Is that fair? Yeah, certainly. So we're delighted to be speaking to James Ashton, who is the author of a new book covering the ARM story, The Everything Blueprint. And I'm also very excited to announce we've got our first ever competition on the podcast. So listen to the end of the episode to learn how you can win a copy of James's book. To set the scene, I'm just going to read a little bit of the foreword for you. One tiny device lies at the heart of the world's relentless technological advance, the microchip. These slivers of silicon are essential to running just about any machine. And at the centre of billions of these chips is a blueprint created and nurtured by a single company, Arm. Hi, James. And thanks very much for coming on our podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to talk today. So let's start talking about you, first of all, and some of your background. So you're a financial journalist. You've worked at some of the major titles, Daily Mail, Sunday Times, Evening Standard, and you've written about a whole range of things. So tell us a little bit about your background, first of all, please. I've always been, up until very recently, a financial journalist, and and that includes Sunday Times, Evening Standard, and so on. And um, I've been self-employed for... Uh, seven years in which I was doing all sorts of stuff. And that's when the books really started. And then um, the day job now is not books. I, I run a, a, a trade body called the Quota Companies Alliance. So we champion the public markets and, and the mid-cap and small-cap companies that use them. So there's a whole raft of government stuff going on in, in that space. How do you make the stock exchange and, and the other rival markets fit for the future? And clearly, uh, clearly ARM overlaps with that subject and um, yes, books. Books were very interesting. I got into them from co-writing, ghostwriting with people, and then also have written my own. And uh, the big challenge there is you, you've got to get comfortable with going from a 2,000-word feature to an 80-odd-thousand-word word book, which is just drop intro after drop intro, and hopefully the rest takes care of itself. Yeah. And so this is your fourth book. And you actually talk in there about getting that balance between it's got to be technically aware, but you don't want to go too far down. So so talk to us about how you actually picked ARM as the topic of this fourth book. Yeah, well, I hoped I hoped the the balance is, you know, this is not necessarily a book for people who are deep into the industry. I wanted to be able to try to write a general interest business book on what just happened to be a, a really, really complicated um, industry. And I hope, uh, you know, I hope I've I've got away with with some of that. Why did I pick Arm? I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted a big, big corporate story, um, high tech, global, touches many, many lives. And, um, you know, the UK has a you know, great record of innovation, but actually that checklist, there's only really a short number of, of companies on there. And I think ARM, it's funny, maybe because I'm living and breathing a bit at the moment, I think ARM is, is pretty unique in that respect. And actually the, the figure I think that, that um, I hadn't seen before, which they put out in the prospectus recently, you know, ARM products are used by 70% of the world's population, which I, I think is astonishing. 
So, so that was the draw, and I knew them reasonably. I'd written on what we used to call TMT, Telecoms Media and Technology, at, at various papers, and I, I knew the the CEOs and so on. And you go into the project thinking, well, I know this company, and of course, uh, you know, eighteen months later, you go, well, really, I didn't. Um, but it, it has been fascinating. Yeah, I mean, clearly we're going to be a little bit biased as we cover technology in Cambridge. <laughs> so being a Cambridge-born company, we think ARM is a great choice to cover. Um, and it's such an interesting story. There's so much to unpack. I mean, what what kind of stood out for you? I mean, I've got a list of things that I want to bring up as part of this question, but why don't we just start with your take on, you know, what did you learn from from writing the book that you didn't know about ARM before you started? There's a few things that emerged that I didn't you know, well understand before. I think one of them is that real tension and real competition with Intel through, through over many years, uh, when Intel, which of course was was always the the PC chip and had a, had a you know huge control, if you like, or the, you know the, the greater share of that market, really missed mobile. You know their efforts to try to get in with, with Apple. Of course, their chips were in the uh, the Apple Macs for many years, and their efforts to get into the um, iPhone and iPad. I think that's that was really interesting to see how ARM was just an easier company to work with. And I think being easy to work with, it sounds it sounds like they were very casual about it. But I think their sort of flexibility and willingness to collaborate is something that comes back. Over the years, I mean, they're thirty-three-year-old company now, and I think there's some issues of you know judgment in there. Things that they did early on, they they were international from day one. They realised that a company that was set up to produce a better chip for Acorn and a new chip for uh, Apple's first portable device was not really um, enough of a base on which to to build a company. So they had to be international. They had to you know jump on the plane, and I think. Uh, another lesson of the secret of their success would be they didn't try to do too much. I mean, this this semiconductor industry is full now of these giants such as TSMC, such as ASML, who I touch on both in the book. They do one thing really, really well. Uh, and actually, the companies that strayed over over history, there was a great early competitor to ARM in the uh, chip architecture space called MIPS Technologies. It went off and tried to make PCs. It got a little bit distracted. And it lost its its momentum. So there's lots of different pieces. I think the other thing that I was really keen to get under the skin of is everyone, when they talk about ARM, they, they talk about the ancient history and how it was born out of Acorn. And they talk about the long, long relationship with Apple. Absolutely, that's very, very important. The key piece of work they did was getting the ARM designs into Nokia. So I think how that came about was a really interesting chapter to, to piece together. Yeah, well, why don't we why don't we spend a little bit of time talking about mobile? As you say, you know, the kind of incumbent like Intel really missed that mobile opportunity. You know, one of the advantages I guess ARM had was its low power consumption, which made it ideal for mobile devices. What did you gather from conversations with the founders? You know, was that a beautiful coincidence slash mistake and a stroke of luck, or was there some strategic thought? process around you know avoiding head-to-head competition with a giant like intel and trying to find market opportunities where they could really flourish well there is a there's a a famous piece of paper which was the the swot analysis that they did of markets they thought their design their architecture would would be applicable to and uh, there's no mention on that piece of paper of of mobile the closest they got was portable uh, because there wasn't really a mobile market in 1990 the first ceo robin saxby he'd 
been a senior VP or whatever salesperson at, at uh, Motorola and knew really well how to segment markets and sell. So if you sold it into automotive, you could also sell it into consumer electronics and so on. So he, he was very good at looking across all the markets where he thought these devices that would need a brain, if not today, then very, very soon. They were looking at everything apart from PC. In terms of mobile, I don't think anybody knew, I don't think Nokia knew that um, we, we would all be tethered to these devices or, or multiples of these devices a, f- a few years down the line, even as they were talking to Nokia. And, and it was kind of indirect conversation with Nokia because, the, because ARM didn't manufacture the chips. So the key company in the middle there was Texas Instruments, who signed up to work with ARM in 1993. Even when those conversations were going on, I think there were people in the company who still thought that games consoles were a, a far bigger opportunity than mobile ever would be. There was, uh, you know, Nintendo and others they were talking to. I mean, they were they were back and forward on the plane to to Japan very very regularly. And then yes, mobile took off, but it took it took several years. I mean, that initial TI contract was I think. 93 working with Nokia was 94 and actually that first Nokia phone the breakthrough phone the 6110 which people remember as the first for having the snake game on it it was not out until late 97 so there were several several years of development there but i think the the signing up of TI was a real eye opener for the whole industry and when you say you know they really capitalize on mobile as you just pointed out it, this still predates really what we would consider smartphones this is still feature phones so uh, they were they were in that kind of that second generation i guess really rather than leaping straight to the smartphone revolution well, I mean, it, it's interesting. Those brands, you think of the brands from, you call them feature phone. I, I've, I've sort of in my mind called them either dumb phone or smartphone. But, but there's kind of like that decade difference. And you think about those brands who were there in feature phone, Nokia, Sanyo, Ericsson, and so many of those didn't transpose over to, to smartphone. But because of arms versatility, it absolutely did. Absolutely. And then I guess the other rich vein of, uh, of story is just how many liquidity events that Arm has had through its history. It first IPO'd in 1998. There is an upcoming IPO as well, which I'm sure you cover. There was also the acquisition by SoftBank in 2016. And then quite famously, the failed acquisition by NVIDIA in 2020. So I guess there's a lot of story to tell around those different events. I'm a financial journalist who's written about technology, so I would come at the story from the point of view of those, um, you know, corporate relationships, the personalities, and then the numbers bouncing around. And you're right, the company has, has, has traded a few times, and I'm sure every time uh, it trades, James, the, the cars in the Cherry Hinton car park get just a little bit bigger. So it, ha- it has been interesting how um, the, the value has, has gone up. Yeah, it was a billion dollars at the end of the first day's trading in '98. Taken private for uh, what was the figure? I think thirty-two billion dollars in twenty sixteen, and um, well, as much as they can get in the coming weeks on Nasdaq. I think you know it could be sixty billion, seventy billion. Let's see. And James, on that, so we talked to Dr. Herman Hauser um, recently, and he's been very vocal about how UK businesses should stay UK owned. He was extraordinarily vocal at the NVIDIA potential takeover. What What's your take on that? Do you think it's ever possible for a business like Arm to stay national? It's difficult. You know, a business like Arm is, is in, and I think this is the challenge with all of those deals and non-deals that James listed. I mean, because ARM is 
pretty indispensable now in the chip industry. Its its designs are licensed a thousand times a second, 30 billion times a year. It's the company that everybody wants to own a piece of and nobody can quite work out how. Because the, the great thing uh, of ARM as it's it's become this sort of Switzerland of semiconductors. It's always been neutral. Uh, the key problem with the NVIDIA deal was if you get bought by one of your partners, it has more than a thousand partners, then all the others were very, very concerned that um, NVIDIA would get preferential treatment. So should it stay national, the company would argue that it is still British. It uh, cites its headquarters as Cambridge. It has 2,800 staff in Cambridge. I suppose the question is, where does the buck stop? Where is the money? You know, Currently, the money is in Tokyo, and it will probably migrate to New York. Although those investors that are trading in, in ARM shares in a month from now, of course, can be from, from all over the world. Would it be nice that ARM was, was back on the, uh, the London Stock Exchange? Certainly with my QCA hat on, or probably with the author's hat on, I would say, yes, that would be good. But because this company traded when it did in, in 2016 and traded in double quick time. I mean, this was a multi-billion dollar deal that happened in 64 days flat. The bankers couldn't believe it. I would say the horse has kind of bolted in that respect. We, you know, we, we lost it in inverted commas from, from the public markets here seven years ago. So it's very difficult to say, just come back now, guys. At the time when it was done, actually, Faye, the, the sale of, of ARM seven years ago was seen as a great vote of confidence in the UK post the Brexit vote. And had it come back to London, it would have been seen as a great vote of confidence in, in the UK. I mean, ARM you know, carries such symbolism. Yeah, it does. It does. But like you say, I guess it's a it's a point of follow the money. So hence the New York listing, the, the pending imminent, maybe even by the time this podcast goes out. Um, it will have been listed in New York. Well, why don't we switch gears and talk a little bit about the role of government? So on our podcast recently, we've had a number of people giving some opinion about uh, the semiconductor industry. Uh, Scott White of Pragmatic springs to mind. In our pre-conversations to recording the episode, James, you, you made a really interesting point that uh, even though now semiconductors are seen as a national asset, so to speak, you know, which has been emphasized by the change of relationship with China and tension with Russia. You know, ARM has never had any government support throughout its lifetime. So what's your view on on this sudden um, attention that the semiconductor industry is receiving from government? And, um, you know, from a UK PLC perspective, do you think we're too late and, uh, in terms of that kind of rush to, to fund the semiconductor industry? And the people you've, you cite, by the way, James, are, are, are far more closely involved in the industry you know it's their meat and drink they'll know all of the moving parts better better than i will i would say that you've, you've got to look on an optimistic side and say it can never be too late i think the challenge for the uk is a bit like the challenge for arm back in the day as this design was was coming together under the auspices of acorn there were severe limitations i think as as herman said who was i always cite as the godfather of of arm you know he he granted the engineers two things no money and no people and and I think the UK is is a bit like that. I don't know who was it who left the, the letter in Treasury and said the money's all gone. But there is this symbolic billion pounds that's been set aside in this new strategy that has that finally come out. It's, it's a decent number, but it's stretched over, over many years. Of course, a billion pounds, I think, is about 23, 25 days of R&D at Intel. So the UK is trying to play in an industry 
which is hugely capital intensive. If you want to, and I don't think we're, we're planning to, which is great because so often the UK government says we must build a factory. If we wanted one of these wonderful chip factories in the UK, well, that's $20 billion. So um, that's not within budget. I think the the thing to do is to, well, first of all, they've got the document out. I think there needs a lot more detail in the strategy. And then I think it's about identifying and playing to the UK's strengths. And they are rightly identified, I think, as design, materials, and, and communications. And, you know, we, and we do still keep creating these good companies. I think one thing the UK government could do is buy British. So there's a great company that is uh, called Graphcore that has made, I think they're called intelligence processing units. I j- jotted this down so I got it right. And, and the CEO wrote to Rishi Sunak and said, well, when, when you build your next supercomputer, super could you buy our chips, please? And, and don't, don't just send an order into NVIDIA. So I think it's sensible things like that. And I think it's helping with the seed capital and the ideas to bring these things up. And we must remember this industry is always changing. So, I mean, I, I, I jotted down, you know, the packaging of chips, you know, how you get them on the substrate, how you you tie them into the devices that, that use them. It always used to be not quite the afterthought, but it was low margin. It was fairly labor intensive. Now, in search of these marginal gains, this is a real center of innovation. So I'm just trying to give the example that it's always changing all the time. So I think it's, it's never too late. Actually, just to draw in TSMC, how they alighted on their business model. We're just going to make the chips. Um, It's because Morris Chang, who was asked to set up the company, looked around at what Taiwan could do, looked at whatever else was doing, and actually making the chips was a business plan he alighted on by process of elimination because he said, whatever... Taiwan can't do this, therefore we have to do this. But I think the one thing the UK must do is um, it has to be a decade's of, of commitment to these industries. It's not, it can't be today's fad and, and forgotten about tomorrow. I think semiconductors needs the sort of long-term commitment that quantum is getting. I think it's definitely a, a conversation that is going to continue to rumble on, especially when, you know, China, the USA are going for the land grab of that supply chain. So we've just got to make sure we're part of that conversation in the UK. Um, so switching the conversation a little bit, the book covers an awful lot about culture and about the founders and really what it feels like. It feels like a story of people and the the human pursuit of creating great things. So, you know, you've talked to so many people. What were some of those highlights from a people perspective that you've written about? I think there's lots of, you know, lovely stories from the early days when they couldn't pay the wage bill and the bonus came late and and I think the culture of ARM really stems from those 12 men plus Robin in the barn in Swaffenbolbeck. And they were only there, I think they were there three years until 94 when they came back to, to Cherry Hinton. But I think that togetherness, and I, th- I'm, I think that's the, the case with a lot of startups. For as long as you can preserve that culture of the early days of, of long hours of helping each other out, of working, of you know, going down the pub in the village and, and drinking together, then that's a great thing. And it, you know, it's only the start of last year when Rene Haas became the CEO. Did Arm break the link at the top from the people who worked in the barn? I think that's incredibly valuable. So Robin, uh, Warren, and Simon, the three previous CEOs, had all been you know part of that very very early culture. I think what was also interesting was, it's interesting how those 12 were chosen. They were selected as, the 12 was the minimum number 
thought to to be required to make a go of this as a business and you would think now because of course eight years down the line they were pretty much all millionaires but you would have thought that that it might have felt like a golden ticket uh, but actually it was very much the opposite that the people who were maybe the older people who could have joined the people with mortgages with families um, they thought it was easier uh, or safer to stay at Acorn. I mean, actually, I think some of them felt in a way cast out. They were sent off to this new venture. Okay, the Apple money was there. It was only $2.5 million, and Apple wasn't quite the, the sort of magical brand that, that, it, that it is today. But there was significant risk, no pun intended, and uncertainty to, to the ones that, that went into the barn. And I think the, the final thing is, they were all so young when they did it that talking to some of them even now, I think they they can believe it, but in a way they can't quite believe it. I mean, if it, it's, I don't think many people have that huge career high in their twenties, and that's something that they've all sort of live on with. It's a great, it's a great experience. So I drive through Swaffham Balbeck every time I come into Cambridge, and it just it amazes me that this huge company came out of literally this this barn. Um, that I drive past nearly every day. But what my my other question is: twelve. Where did tw- who thought twelve was the right number? I've not heard that before. When the conversation advanced with Apple and they required the in, in order to to use the processor designs, they wanted ARM to be a separate company. They didn't particularly want to deal with a, a division of Acorn. Um, the, the, the calculation was done. Who who do we need in the, in the, the, the different? Um, disciplines and how many of each of them do we need and and really it was the bulk of acorn's advanced r&d department that they that they took over those engineers and i think it was jamie urquhart who did the numbers and decided um you're in and you're not i mean 12 in a barn it, it feels something quite biblical to me about how it was done the disciples there you go and it worked incredible i just sorry to finish on that i mean it worked incredibly well with overseas it was a bit quirky and a bit british initially acorn wanted to send arm off to a business park at histon and robin took a look at it and said no it's too expensive and so someone else rustled up a barn and they thought that was the thing and it and the americans and the asian visitors absolutely loved it silicon valley has garages and we have barns i love it and on that note, I mean, you touched on there about the fact that, you know, at a relatively young age, they were all financially pretty much secure. I don't know if it's an unfair comparison, but I was I was just thinking about the impact of ARM and, and ARM's legacy, you know, both on the Cambridge tech ecosystem, but also the, the wider UK tech ecosystem. And, and it might be a, an unfair comparison, but if you compare it to, say, another very successful exit like PayPal, who, you know, produced uh, the famous PayPal mafia who went on to either create or fund some of the biggest technology companies in the world. Did you get a sense of, you know, from talking to the co-founders, did you get a sense of, you know, why some of them just were quite happy to stay and continue to contribute to ARM versus go out into the venture world or start new opportunities in the same way that, for example, the PayPal mafia did in, in the States? Yeah, I think there was, I mean, I think interesting your use of the word exit. I mean, I think a lot of them would think that there wasn't really, really that exit. I mean, PayPal was rolled into, there were various transactions, wasn't there? But I think it was rolled into eBay at one stage and then rolled out again as as a lot of US firms get rolled around. And I think, I think, feel, I mean, some of them 
they did leave over the years, of course. I think one of the twelve is 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 still there now, though, which is you know thirty three years on. But I think there was always more to do. There were always more uh, markets to look at. So there were some changes. I think when Warren East took over as CEO, there was the mobile market to conquer, and then there was automotive, and there was IoT, and so on. So I think the ARM alumni have done various things in terms of you know VC and and venture backing and lots of mentoring work. But you're right; they haven't gone on to found another ARM or something else beyond that. Um, I suppose the the best example, and it's not a great example, is of course Warren after Arm went on to run Rolls Royce, which is by no means a startup. But yeah, you haven't got the the same examples. That could be something about you know UK versus US, you know ways of doing things. You talked earlier on about how Arm is in so many devices, and I'm kind of interested in your view on is that the secret of their success that they. They never went down one route. They were as happy being in Apple or in um, Huawei or Meta Tesla. It didn't really matter what market um, they were in. Do you think that that's one of the keys to their their success? Yeah. Well, first of all, they saw application across categories as they are selling the story on Wall Street currently, they've got to talk about these growth drivers. So, you know, they're saying they're in 99% of smartphones, and but they're also talking about the growth opportunity in Internet of Things, particularly in computer servers and, and data centers and so on. But I think, yes, one of the secrets was that Swiss model in the way that they initially looked for one partner in each of these product categories. And then over time, they started working for everyone. And, you know, here are the building blocks of processor design, and you can take these off the shelf and use them, or you can adapt them and so on. And it really went from use ARM, it will give you competitive advantage, to see what you can do with ARM, and that will give you competitive advantage. And over time, it became the de facto architecture and so many people working in it. I mean, they've got 15 million software developers working on um, uh, you know, ARM-based infrastructure currently, which is amazing. I think the other secret though, Faye, and it wasn't really of their of their choosing. I mean, this royalty model, they went down that road because they didn't really have the means to build the chips themselves. And they always saw that their designs were part of a larger component in the device. I think one of the secrets is they charged so little and if you do that, you become ubiquitous because it's just not worth the hassle for anyone else to really to say, oh, I must um, I must dream up my own instruction set architecture. There's always other things to do if you're investing in in chips and the and the price of coming up with a new design just goes just goes up and up. So by charging a, f- a few cents every time, it became a very easy thing to do. Just use ARM when we won't do it ourselves. The reason they charge so little, by the way, uh, a, a lot of the template was set by Texas Instruments and Nokia. You know, back in 96, 97, ARM had no no negotiating angle. They they um, it was a it was a buyer's market. TI knew that the ARM designs would sell millions of times over in the Nokia phones, and they said, "We're really not going to pay you very much here." Uh, and they meant it, and it was the as I put in the book, it was it was the best deal they ever signed. But actually, from a pounds and pence point of view, it was the worst deal as well. But that just meant that many many more people over time took arm. Yeah, that's really really interesting. 
So, I mean, right at the top of the conversation, James, you said there wasn't a long list of companies that you could potentially write about. So I guess that begs the question, where do you see the next arm coming from? You asked me that before, and I've been scr- I'm scratching my head. And, and um, if I knew where the next arm was coming from, James, uh, you know, I wouldn't be writing books. I'd be investing in companies. <laughs> and, but, but when I would be writing about them, I think I'm the sort of coordinates I look for is where's the smart money come from? Who's on the board? And you know, who's who's getting who's getting talked about? That hopefully just doesn't just mean they've got good PR. But, you know, in, in the process of the book, I looked a lot at a company called Graphcore, which I mentioned earlier, which is, I think it's worth about three three or four billion. I think it's had some teething problems recently, but it is these chips for giant machine learning models. And the chap that runs it, Nigel Toon, has done various, various startups before. And then I think, I think this is one that Herman's in as well. I think Riverlane is interesting. It's not worth as much yet, but it's, it is based in Cambridge. So you'll probably know them and their work in, I think it's an operating system for quantum computers. Sounds interesting, but you just don't know. I, I don't think. It was an unfair question. I'll, I'll hold my hands up. So how can listeners get the book? <laughs> how can they get the book? Oh, that's the easiest question. Well, it's avail- available from all good platforms and, uh, and, and, and bookshops, the Everything Blueprint. And the, the alternative is the audio version, which is um, uh, 12 hours of me in their ear, um, which, is, which is also available. And, and hopefully I'll be in Cambridge soon to talk a little bit more about it. My final question, James. So I always look at who books are dedicated to, um, just because I'm inherently nosy. And so you made a lovely dedication. Do you want to tell the listeners about that? Yes, of course. I better quote it so I get it right. I so I, I dedicated it to, to, to mum and dad for the best start. And they hadn't seen it until we did the launch in London. So and I explained why and that and of course Mum cried, and and Dad, being a very bluff Yorkshireman, said, "Well, that's about right, yeah." <laughs> so, Touché. <laughs> and my brother, my brother, who is many many miles away, just just sent me a a, a line of question marks as if to say, you know, what what do they do? <gasps> oh, love it! Thank you very much. You know, it's been great, great to talk to you, James, and everyone will definitely enjoy the book. And I, I predict that you will probably need to do another version in another few years as well with all the updates that are coming great well thank you thanks for your interest at the top of the podcast james said we'd be giving you an opportunity to get your hands on a copy of the everything blueprint so to be in with a chance we need you to answer a question We've been fortunate to speak to a couple of people directly involved in the arms story. So to win a copy of the book, email info at cambridgetechpodcast.com with the name of the arm co-founder that has appeared so far on the podcast. The closing date is the 28th of September, and we'll be announcing the winner in the first anniversary episode on the 1st of October. For anyone interested in hearing more from James Ashton, he will be appearing at the Bradfield Centre on Wednesday the 11th of October between 5.30 and 7.30pm with ARM co-founder Jamie Urquhart. You can find the link to register on the events page at bradfieldcentre.com. So, on to this week's news. Topically, we're back to ARM and the impending IPO. It's understood that they're targeting a valuation of more than $52 billion on their Wall Street IPO. Key players have told our media partner Business Weekly that they're hoping that potential anchor investors such as NVIDIA will buy it at a share price, which has been set between $47 and $51. 
A whopping 95.5 million shares are being offered by the selling shareholder, SoftBank Group Corp. And the other piece of news is about Cambridge battery innovator, Eshion Technologies. A big-hitting US investor majoring in transformational technologies has pumped significant growth capital into Eshion. Volta Energy Technologies says it's exciting for the University of Cambridge spin-out's prospects in a lucrative market. No figures are being revealed, but the investment will further accelerate the scale-up and commercialization of Eshion's advanced niobium-based battery anode materials. Importantly, it will enable Eshion to meet growing customer demand in North America, South Korea, China, and the wider Asia-Pacific region. And that's it for this week. Tune in next week when we'll be talking holographic display technology for AR and VR gaming with Alexandra Petrocheska from VividQ. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919 600.